Hello, I'm Derek Walker, the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. Today I want to start a, a series um, of a more advanced nature about the rapture. Does the Bible teach a pre-tribulation rapture? The Bible speaks of a coming time, which I believe we're getting close to. A time at the end of the age called the day of the Lord or the tribulation. And it will be by far the worst period of time that will ever be. It's described in great detail in the book of Revelation. And there are two reasons why it will be so bad. First, in it, the evil will be allowed to come to its fullness, especially in the Antichrist and his world empire, resulting in the worldwide persecution of the saints and all those who refuse to take the mark of the beast. And this aspect is the, uh, of it is, is why it's called the tribulation, a time of great trouble. The second aspect is that it's also a time of intensifying divine wrath when God is pouring out judgments on heaven as the seven seals are broken and the seven trumpets are blown and the, the seven bowls of wrath are poured out. And that's why this time is also called the day of the Lord. The Bible also says that the church age will end with the rapture of the church. This is the coming of Christ for the church in which he instantly catches up all living believers to meet him in the air and translates them into immortal bodies without experiencing death. At about the same time, all those in Christ who have died during the church age will be resurrected and will also meet the Lord in the air. The, the controversial issue is how the rapture is related to the tribulation. That's an important issue for us because it's very relevant for our lives and how we prepare for future events. If the rapture is before the tribulation, then it's imminent. Jesus could come for us at any time. And, and, um, and so that means we are looking and watching for Christ coming for us, keeping our focus on him and preparing for our awesome meeting with him and that motivates us to holiness and service and evangelism so that we'll be pleasing to him but if the rapture is at the end of the tribulation then Jesus will not come back for at least another seven years and since the Antichrist and the mark of the beast will come first our main focus will tend to be on world events and preparing ourselves for the Antichrist I aim to prove that the rapture is before the tribulation and therefore our main focus should be on Christ rather than the Antichrist. Let's first go to the two famous rapture passages. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. You see, the spirits of dead saints go to heaven when they die and so when Jesus returns he'll bring their spirits with him from heaven in order to be reunited with their bodies on earth. It goes on and says for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We get the word rapture from this verse because the word caught up there, harpazo in Greek, when translated into Latin is rapture. So rapture is in the Bible. It's clear that there are two groups here, those who've died in Christ, in verse 16, and those who are still alive when the rapture happens, verse 17. 
uh, and they are to rise up to meet Jesus in distinct order, with the dead in Christ rising first, followed by those who are still alive. It follows that the trumpet of God must be blown twice. The first sounding will be to resurrect the dead and call them up to Christ. Then the second sounding of the trumpet will be to rapture the living, so that they're caught up in the air to meet Christ. And this, of course, will be the last trumpet of the church age. This agrees perfectly with 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be, ch- but ch- but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Here Paul focuses on those who are still alive at the rapture and reveals that our bodies will be changed rather than resurrected and this will happen at the sounding of the last trumpet. This implies that there's also a previous blowing of the trumpet which we know from 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, is the trumpet that initiates the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And that's confirmed by what Paul says next when he summarizes the whole event. He says, for the trumpet will sound, that's the first trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And then second, we shall be changed. And that's, of course, at the last trumpet, because uh, he doesn't have to say that uh, again, because he said that in the previous verse. By combining both passages, we can see, therefore, that Christ sounds his trumpet twice. At the first trumpet, the dead are raised, and at the last trumpet, we who are alive will be raptured. In presenting the case for the pre-trib rapture, I first want to focus on its purpose in the divine plan. It's not just about the physical change in our bodies, but it's the exciting climactic moment in the divine romance, where Christ, our bridegroom, comes to fetch his bride so that we might be married, fully united together forever. You see, God designed the Jewish marriage customs to be a picture of the divine romance. Having chosen his bride from eternity, he came to earth to demonstrate his love by dying for us, paying the bride price with his blood. Then by the gospel, he declares his everlasting love for us, offering us an eternal covenant with him. When we received Christ, we were betrothed to him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I've betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This betrothal was sealed by the couple drinking from the same cup, signifying that their hearts and lives were now as one. And then the man told his bride that he must now return to his father's house to make all necessary preparations for their wedding and future life together like building a house for them to live. He assured her that he would surely return for her and that then they would be together forever. And that's exactly what we see at the Last Supper when Jesus offered the cup to his disciples, representing the church, saying, This is the new covenant established in my blood. Drink from it, all of you. The bridegroom also promised not to drink any more wine until they were reunited in joyful union. This was a sign of his commitment to fulfill his promise to her. Likewise, Jesus said at the Last Supper, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Soon after the meal, the bridegroom, Jesus, gave these tender words of assurance to his bride. In John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house 
in heaven are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now, the context of these words in John 14 is his soon physical departure to his Father in heaven. For this whole passage of Scripture begins with a statement in John 13, verse 1, which says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. And so the whole setting is his imminent departure to heaven, his death and resurrection. At this time, Jesus announced his imminent physical departure from them to return to his Father in heaven, saying uh, in, in the same meal, John, in John 16, he said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So the purpose of these words in John 14, when he says, you know, do not be anxious, believe in God, believe also in me, was to offer comfort to his bride in the face of their coming separation, that he will physically return from heaven for her and then they will then be together forever. So when Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. He's talking about he's going to heaven, but he's going to come back from heaven for his bride, to fetch her and take her back to heaven with him. See, the Father's house is heaven, as many scriptures, including the Lord's Prayer, confirm, you know, our Father in heaven. So when he talks about my Father's house, he's talking about heaven. So he was saying he's about to go to his Father in heaven, but he was also promising that he'll return from heaven for his beloved bride. And this is talking about a return from heaven after his ascension, not a return, as some say, from the grave after his resurrection. His physical return to them when he appeared to them after the resurrection was just temporary. But what he's promising in, these, in John 14 here is a permanent physical reunion. And that's the promise of the rapture. So John 14 is a classic rapture passage. And, uh, and, it, and it confirms a pre-tribulation rapture. Because he is coming back for his bride and taking his bride to heaven for a period of time before he returns to the earth again in the second coming. He declared he would soon return to his father's house, heaven, to prepare a place for us, uh, which he fulfilled in the ascension. But he also promised to return from heaven to receive us to himself, so we'd be with him forever. This is his promise, to return for his bride and take her to be with him in heaven. And uh, otherwise, his promise to prepare dwelling places in heaven for the bride would be meaningless. Moreover, a comparison with the rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 reveals an almost exact correspondence of thought in order. So he's talking about the rapture in John 14. Well, once the groom made this promise that he would go but return for his bride, he, um, once he made this promise and he departed from, to his father's house, there'd be a time of physical separation during which both the bride 
and the groom would keep their hearts pure, looking forward with joyful anticipation to their reunion, when all their dreams would be fulfilled. When the great moment came and the father gave the signal for the wedding to go ahead, the son would go in joyful procession to fetch his bride. Meanwhile, the bride, who didn't know exactly when her groom would come for her, would eagerly look for his coming, hoping each day would be the great day. She'd prepare her wedding dress in which she'd be presented to him. And the bride speaks of this being our righteous deeds for Christ. This is a picture of the present age of the preparation of the bride, where we're called to live holy lives, looking forward to his return. And so the rapture is the dramatic, romantic moment when the Lord himself comes uh, to where his bride lives with a shout of joy. He personally lifts her up in his arms and carries her away to his father's house for the wedding. This isn't something he can delegate to his angels. That's why the classic rapture passage says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a joyful shout. That's the bridegroom shouting for joy. Back at the father's house, she would then bathe and change into her wedding dress, which is a picture of the judgment seat of Christ where we're cleansed from our dead works and we receive our rewards being clothed in glory according to our righteous works. The bride is then presented to her bridegroom as a glorious bride and she becomes his wife, after which they spend some special time together as it were to consummate the marriage before appearing in public again for the marriage feast. The fact that Jesus comes especially for his bride to take her to heaven agrees perfectly with the pre-tribulation rapture, but there's no room for it in the post-tribulation scenario where they both have to immediately return to battlefield earth. In fact, much of the meaning and romance of the rapture is lost because there's no time for that since there's so many other things that have to be done on that day. Revelation 19 confirms the pre-tribulation scenario. For there we see the glorious bride already in heaven before the second coming. Only now she's his wife. Let's read that. Let's be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then the marriage supper is announced, which is about to happen on earth. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then this same bride, who has just been identified by her fine linen, clean and bright, is seen as returning to earth with Christ in a few verses later. Verse 14, the armies in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Therefore, the rapture of the bride must have taken place sometime well before the second coming because she's already in heaven before the second coming and she returns with Christ. Revelation 4 tells us exactly when this rapture happens. John is called up to heaven by a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. And clearly he's about to be shown a future time. And the following chapters make it clear it's the tribulation. In heaven, just before the tribulation, in verse 4, he sees 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones, clothed with white robes, with crowns of gold on their head. Now whenever the term elder is used in the Bible, it always refers to men, hundreds of times. And these men, by reason of their maturity, are leaders who represent a larger group such as the Sanhedrin. 
uh, or the church, elders of a church. In fact, it's a standard term for church leaders. So the natural interpretation is that these 24 elders represent the church. Moreover, the term elders is inappropriate for angels because all angels are the same age and they're created fully mature rather than going through different stages of growth from babies to adulthood. Elders hardly describes angels, which are all the same age. And moreover, the 24 elders are distinguished from the angels in, in 5.11 and also in 7.11. These elders are identified by white garments. They're seated on thrones. They have crowns of gold on their head. And, and these are the very things promised to the overcomers of the church age in the previous chapter. Their overcomers have promised white garments and thrones and crowns. And these are what resurrected men receive at the judgment seat of Christ. So the context in the previous chapter, chapter 3 of Revelation, confirms that these, these elders are resurrected, rewarded men. And these crowns are called Stephanos, that's the word for a victor's crown. Whereas angels are never described as wearing crowns. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament revelations of heaven, they never see elders in heaven, because these elders will only be there after the rapture. And their identification of these 24 elders as, as being the church, or representing the church, like special leaders of the church, um, is confirmed by the fact that the church is a royal priesthood, and so they're not only enthroned as kings, but they fulfill a priestly ministry. And then number 24 corresponds to the 24 chief priests over the 24 priestly causes of Israel that represent the whole priesthood. So these 24 chief priests were also called elders because they were members of the Sanhedrin. So at the start of the tribulation, we see the church is already in heaven, represented by the 24 elders, and uh, that's before the judgments even begin. And that's confirmed by their song in Revelation 5.9. They sing, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we will reign on the earth that this is, speaking of the church, is confirmed by Revelation 1. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Now, there is a manuscript issue in this verse, um, in, in Revelation 5.9. Whether it should be translated, redeemed us, you have redeemed us, or you have redeemed them. And there's a similar issue in verse 10, which is why most modern translations use them rather than us, like the King James, New King James does, which I use. Now, the manuscript evidence for verse 10 does indeed um, favour them. But the evidence for verse 9 is very much in favour of redeemed us. In fact, 23 out of the 24 key manuscripts say us. And the, in the one exception, the Alexandrinus manuscript, the word is missing altogether. Even the oldest manuscript, the Sinaiticus, and the other primary manuscript has us. So 
sadly, the modern translators inserted them into verse 9. So it's, they sing, you have redeemed them. They, the reason they did that was to make it consistent with verse 10, which is them. But in so doing, they were not following the manuscript evidence, but imposing their own reasoning on the text. So if we just follow the manuscript evidence for verse 9, these 24 elders sing, You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people and nation. So it's, they are not angels singing. These are redeemed men. Then in verse 10, the four living creatures join in into agreement, singing, You have made them kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So this is an example of antiphonal singing. This proves that the church is already in heaven at the start of the tribulation. And the action in heaven centers on the scroll with seven seals in Revelation 5. The scroll is the title deed of the earth. And now the Lamb, and, it, and it's really all about how the Lamb is, alone is worthy to open this scroll, uh, to prove his right to take possession of the earth and to judge all those who rebel against his authority. And then in Revelation 6, he opens the first six seals, releasing judgments on the earth. And this proves that the whole tribulation is a time of divine judgment. And that's why a better name for it is the Day of the Lord. These judgments are unfolded through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath, which are all initiated from heaven. You see, God's wrath does not start with the bowls of wrath. Because we're told that in them the wrath of God is completed. That's Revelation 15.1. So the wrath of God started earlier when he opens the first seal. Following the breaking of the seals, we see Antichrist going forth to conquer, followed by world war and worldwide famines, pestilences, persecutions and massive disturbances of nature like earthquakes. And these exactly correspond to the birth pains that Jesus described as marking the end of the age. The fact that Christ is now moving in judgment mode is seen by the fact he's no longer seated, but he now is standing. As Revelation 5, 6 and 7 says, In the midst of the throne stood a lamb. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now if we compare this to Psalm 110, verse 1, the father tells the son to sit at his right hand until it's time for him to subdue his enemies underfoot. So the time for judgment is now come. The moment he starts to stand means he's moved into a different mode. He's moved into judgment mode. And this time of judgment starts in Revelation 6 and it continues until its climax in the great and awesome day of the Lord. Literally the great and manifest day of the Lord. The manifestation of the glory of the Lord at the second coming. As his bride, we should have great confidence that he'll come to deliver us before the time of worldwide wrath. First of all, we've got his promise in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where believers are described as those who wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Certainly, this must include the wrath of the day of the Lord or, or the tribulation. In fact, this must be the wrath in view. Because our deliverance from this coming wrath is directly connected to his return for us in this verse. And this verse is then promised later in 1 Thessalonians, where he says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the context of those verses tells us that this wrath 
uh, this is the wrath of the day of the Lord um, and not hell. Uh, and that the salvation we receive instead of the wrath is the completion of our salvation at the rapture. I want to emphasize that the reason why I believe in the pre-trib rapture is not to escape the persecution of the Antichrist. If the tribulation was just like the church age but with an extra measure of persecution as some imagine it, that would be one thing. But if we take Revelation literally, it'll be a time period utterly like anything beforehand. For it won't just be a time when evil comes to its fullness, but it's a time of ever intensifying divine wrath leading up to the second coming. And we are not appointed to wrath. Another promise is Revelation 3.10. It's a, Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. As in all the New Testament letters, the promises are to the whole church. As Christ says in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This worldwide time of trial can only be the tribulation, which is the main subject of the following chapters of Revelation. The key point here is that Christ didn't just say he'd keep us from the trial, but that he would keep us from the time of trial, the hour of trial, the very time period itself. That's the plain meaning. Even if one ignores that fact, the promise is more general than just keeping us from the wrath of God during the tribulation. It says we will be protected from this worldwide trial, which includes the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. But this is manifestly not true concerning the tribulation saints who are killed in great numbers by the Antichrist. So they're not protected from this time of trial. Uh, In fact, it says about the Antichrist, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Well, having given the promise, the very next verse in Revelation 3 says that Christ will accomplish it by the rapture because he says, behold, I am coming quickly. After all, if the time of trial is worldwide and is going to come upon all who live on the earth, the only way to be kept from it is to be removed from the earth. Surely, a loving and powerful bridegroom, before he bombards his bride's dwelling place, would extract her from it before releasing his wrath. So the coming of Christ is imminent. He will come suddenly for his own and he will take us to heaven with him before the tribulation begins. So we need to be rapture ready. Make sure you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior and live a life that's worthy of him. Jesus is coming soon. In fact, he could come at any time. And when he comes, he's going to come and receive us to himself in the rapture. And you know, the rapture is one of the most exciting subjects in the Bible. And I want to encourage you, if you want to know more about the rapture, if you want to kind of build up that joyful hope inside you, that of Jesus coming for you, then let me encourage you to read my book, The Pre-Tribulation Rapture. And that's going to bring you into this subject in, in a new way. And I believe it will bless your life and fill you with the hope that, of meeting Jesus Jesus, the hope of glory. Join with us at Oxford Bible Church every Sunday at 11am Greenwich Mean Time for our live stream service. Or join us at Cheney School, Headington, Oxford, OX3 7QH. You can watch more of our teachings on our Roku channel and Derek Walker's YouTube channel.
all Derek Walker's books are available in printed and Kindle versions in all Amazons worldwide or online with other great products where you can also support our programs at www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk or by calling 01865 515 086.